Take your Bible today and turn to page 735 in your pew Bible. It's Luke 24. And we're going to look at the first six verses of Luke this morning. In Memphis, Tennessee, there is a place called Graceland. It is the former home of the rock star, idol, Elvis Presley. Now, the Lord has been good to me. I've been able to travel a great deal around the world, but Memphis, Tennessee, and Graceland is one place I never have been. But one who was there, whose name is Dan Betzer, and he's a Christian writer, and he described his visit to Graceland. And I thought it was interesting what he said. He said he browsed through the house, and when he went through the house, he saw the signs of Elvis torment. Now I thought that was interesting. Saw those everywhere. And then he said he finished his tour, and he buttoned up his coat, and he went out into the rain, and he stood beside the grave. It was on, at the, on the side of the house next to the swimming pool. And he saw a simple bronze plaque. And on that plaque were the words, Elvis Aaron Presley. But he said, what caught his attention more than the plaque or the beautiful grounds were the people standing around. There were hundreds of them standing around. And many of them were weeping. And some were putting flowers here, there, and yonder. Now that's amazing within itself. It's even more amazing that this was done 17 years after Elvis Presley died in 1977. Now that's something. And in Luke 24, we see the same thing. We see the women come into the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus. Let's look at our scripture this morning. Luke 24, beginning at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, they were looking for the body. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling, now note that word, dazzling apparel. And as the women, women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. You see, these women were like the people around the grave of Elvis. They had come 
to bring a memorial. They had come to do what they could do. It was all they could do. But they were going to do it. You might say they were fans of Jesus. And they were going to anoint his body, but something happened to them that didn't happen to Dan Betzer beside the grave of Elvis. And what happened to them is the fact that they were dazzled. Now, they had come with respect and honor and even reverence. And that's all they thought they were going to have. They thought they were just going to go there and have a time of mourning, and all of a sudden, they got dazzled. But you see, they were disappointed because the tomb was empty. The biggest heresy of the Christian faith is the fact that you can make it to God by being good. Now, being good... <laughs> is good, <laughs> and, it, excuse me, and it impresses other people. But if that's all you've got, you're going to come up empty. Do you remember the great sermon that Jesus preached on that mountain in Galilee? And do you remember what he said about being good? He said, many will say to me on that day, the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not do good? Did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons? In your name perform many mir wonderful miracles? Now notice that's not just helping folks across the street. That's not just bringing them a meal on wheels. Those had to do with some supernatural stuff that they thought they were involved in. And he said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work or practice lawlessness. You see, following Jesus is a matter of the heart. It's not just a matter of the hand. And the unknown writer of Hebrews talks about it when he says, Therefore, Christian, leave the elementary teaching about Christ. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and even of faith toward God. Now, dead works are what the Bible calls having the form of religion, but denying the power thereof being very comfortable with church, being very active in church, going through all the things, but not having the power that flows in and flows out. Now, you can do that. But there are many people that even get confused about that because they falsely use this concept, well, I don't want dead works. They falsely lose this to have a sentimentally oriented, lawless kind of faith. They believe in a manby-panby, permissive God that they can go out here and decide what they want to do. If they want to do this, even though it might cause somebody to stumble, they'll do it just because they want to do it. If they can do this rather than attend 
the services on God's day in his house, they'll do it. And they don't pray about it. They don't check it out with God. They just say, I want to do it because my God is a God of grace. And I can do whatever I please. And the Bible says, no, you can't. It says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Clergyman in Florida this past uh, few weeks ago, he was quoted in Newsweek. And he actually said, we've come to this. <laughs> he actually said, sin is no big deal with God. Yes, it is. It's a big deal with God because it can square separate you from God. And you don't determine what is sin and what is not sin. And you don't determine, well, maybe some people do this, but I don't have to do this because I'm in grace. That is a perversion of grace. And Paul says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may be accountable to God. We live in an age where nothing is anybody's fault. And the reason it's not anybody's fault is because we have departed from this book that holds us accountable before God. Mankind is deceived. I recently heard an interview by a man on the street in New York about the baseball strike. Now, I can't tell you from this pulpit everything he said, particularly when he was describing people that make $15,000 an hour and go on strike. But he said this baseball strike is symptomatic that our society is gone crazy. And he said, I don't know what is wrong. Well, beloved, we can know what is wrong. We can find out what is wrong. And that's the reason in Romans 7, Paul said, I would not have come to know sin, that is what's wrong, except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. And it's not enough to say, Well, because Jesus died for me, I can covet today. I may not covet next Sunday, but I can covet today. I can go to church today. Next Sunday, I may decide I don't want to. So I don't have to. And woe be it to God or any preacher if he says anything to me about it. Beloved, God's law in God's book is the only way we know what's wrong. Paul called it another place. He said it's a mirror. In the law, you can look at yourself. And as you look at yourself, you can find what is wrong? Because the law is there to govern us. There's spiritual and physical and universal laws. They're not there to give you a hard time. They're not there to make you a prude. 
They're not there to make you feel you're better than other people if you keep them. They are there because that's the way that you realize your access to God. Now, salvation is by grace, but that's all that's by grace. Once you're saved, your growth has to do with how well you, of your own volition, put yourself under the control of the Holy Spirit. And you see, when you break one law of God, then you damage that access. And what you do is that you go against the natural order for your good that God has put out there, and we call that sinning. And you see, we create our own punishments. God doesn't have to punish us. The law of cause and effect will punish us. If we pollute the environment, we suffer devastation. If we overeat, we get fat and we have health problems. If we undereat, that creates its own problems. If we fail to exercise, our body becomes flabby and we don't have the strength that we need. If we take drugs, we abuse our mental and physical powers. Now, none of these sins of the flesh are any greater than any of the others. All of them damage our access to the power that God has given us by grace. And I think when some of us, me included, stand before God, he's going to sit upon his throne and he's going to say, Oh, my dick, what you could have been. What you could have done. What you could have had, have had. God does not use incorrect grammar. <laughs> what you could have had. And it's not the fact that God puts them down here to give us a hard time. It's the fact that he knows this is the way to live. And he's given us dominion over our body and over our environment. And we are responsible. And our responsibility to, to obey the law, that's not the most important thing. Paul, in writing one of his first letters to a church that he founded on his first missionary journey, Galatia, he says, therefore, the law is not an end in itself. He says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, you can have the greatest tutor in the world. But if you don't do what that tutor says, what good's it going to be to you? Let's say you get a tutor for math and your parents invest money. Mine would have if they could have done it and it would have helped me. But they invest money in this tutor for math and this tutor comes and tells you how to do it and you don't do it. Then you don't have access to what mathematics can do for you. And so the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. And 10 years later, Paul wrote to the Romans, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And what you do, you develop your discernment. Now, if God gives you the knowledge of sin and he says 
This is sin in your life. And you say, well, it's no worse than other folks. I'm not bound by all these things. I'm free in Jesus. And you don't listen to it. Then little by little, his holiness does not become rooted in your life. And as we sang that song today, if people ask us about how we know the Lord, and I was thinking, I wonder how many of us are getting asked by the people we work around, by the people we associate with. And it may be, beloved, because we're not taking the law seriously. Our dear ladies on the resurrection morning had to learn this. They came to the tomb. They did all that they could. They brought their spices and they found something they didn't understand. The stone was gone, but there wasn't anybody there. The grave was empty and they were disappointed. <laughs> you see, often we would be satisfied with what our good works could accomplish. Even if we obeyed the law. We'd be satisfied, but when we begin to obey the law and heed the law and desire more than anything else, that holiness, that is something you hardly ever hear anymore. That holiness be a part of our life. When we come to the place where we say, God, if there, just like Dwight L. Moody said, he said, if there's ever been a man who totally surrendered himself to your will. God, I want to be that man. And you know what God did with an uneducated shoe salesman. And there's still a Bible college today in his name. Years after his death, because he simply said, I'm going to do what you lead me to do. But you see, God has more for us. When we come under the tutorship of the law, then God begins to take us far from it. And he begins to dazzle us. Now, I've been speaking when I came back from my sabbatical. God told me to speak on the uh characteristics of God. So I brought a message on the God of power and presence, the God who truly cares, the God of the good stuff, the God of the parking place, the God with skin on. And today I'm talking about the God who dazzles. And you remember those women when they came into the tomb and it was empty and the stone was rolled away and they saw those angels and it says those angels were in dazzling garments. And I believe that the, the, the glory of God just filled that place. Remember in Acts 9, that same thing happened to the apostle Paul. Remember he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was perfect according to the law. He was doing the best he was taught. He was zealous for the things of God and right in the middle of his work for God, the dazzling God appeared to him in Jesus. He never saw anything like that. And he fell on his face and he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And he wrote a third of the New Testament. 
Now this happened to those women. They fell to the ground when they saw those angels and they heard the angels say, why do you see the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. But remember, that happened to them because they were doing the best they could do. It wasn't too healthy to say you followed that man. You remember what they did to him? And they said, we'll do it to you if you don't watch out. And so they came. They came with all the zeal they could have. They did what they could do, the utmost. But God began to teach them. You see, we have to be schooled into the dazzling nature of God. A couple of weeks ago, Dick Robinson talked to our men. And he quoted Romans 14, 17, where it says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. And he said that's a process. You begin with righteousness. Now that's by grace. For by grace have you been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. First of all, you get God's righteousness and know that you have it. That's our seed program. We go out and talk to people about that. But then, following that, comes the peace of God. When you uh, depend on Him, not just for salvation, but for living every day. And you say, God, I don't just want your grace to save me and liberate me from that which is inconvenient or a little difficult. I want your grace not only to redeem me, but I want that grace to operate unhindered every day of my life. And then comes the joy, righteousness, peace, and joy. Then the joy is as you experience the dazzling power of God that operates through your life. Are you dazzling? Are you dazzling? As you go around this city, are you dazzling? When people see you, do you dazzle? Well, beloved, I believe you can. And I believe if we're not, then it's time that we have some repentance and we seek the Lord like we used to see him probably, seek him probably and come to him. Some people want a short circuit to process. They want an easy sanctification. And there's no way that's going to happen. Robert Woodyard who is associate at my friend's church in Oklahoma City, he tells the story of a member of their congregation who's a, who was a great piano artist, kind of like our Dot Smith. And she had a cousin who was not a Christian. And her cousin came to visit her, and her cousin went to her church, but her cousin didn't like her church. <laughs> and her cousin said, I don't like your preacher. Every time I hear him preach, he's talking about discipline. He talks about reading the Bible every day, praying all the time, meditating, giving, praying more. All seems so regimented. Do this, do that, do the other thing. Seems to me very unnatural, and in some ways, it doesn't even seem to me to be Christian. 
This lady's name was Catherine. And she was very silent because she had been praying for this encounter. And she didn't say anything for a minute. And then she got up and she went over to the piano. And she played several bars of a beautiful concerto that she was working on. And she played them beautifully. And then she stopped. And she just looked at her cousin. And her cousin said, what's your point? And Catherine said, "Uh, was that natural? She said, yes, it was natural for you because you've been playing for years. She said, was it legalistic? Was it regimented? Cousin said, no. But music is different. You love your music and you love to play it. Catherine said, I love being a Christian too. But I have to practice it. I love to be able to play. But I wouldn't be able to play that way if I hadn't practiced hour after hour after hour for 15 years. And I didn't just practice when I felt like it. I didn't just practice it when I was inspired. I didn't just practice it when the God was very sweet to me and gave me the desire to sit down and play. No, every day I went there and the discipline was in my life and what I just did is the fruit of that. Now, you be sure, she told told her cousin, she said, my gift is God's grace. God gave me my fingers. God gave me a piano. God gave me time to practice. God gave me a desire to practice. He gave me a love for music. That's all grace. Grace. But that's not where the music came from. The grace didn't produce the music. But the grace plus the yieldedness plus the practice plus the sweat gave the beautiful music. And the same is true with the Christian life. And her cousin sat there (laughs) and she looked at her for a moment and she dropped her head and she said, forgive me for arguing with you about this. I really ought to listen to you because you play so beautifully. And Catherine said, I do love my music. And her cousin's eyes filled up with tears and she said, I wasn't talking about the music. The women at the tomb heard the music. They heard it because of their obedience. They heard it because they went up and went, got up and went. They heard it because they were doing what they could and doing all they could could do even at the peril of their lives. But God had so much more. You see, he's so much more than we expect. And maybe you're like me and like a lot of folks that I've met. Maybe you just don't feel you have much to offer because you've blown it. Maybe you're like Peter. You've denied your Lord and you've lied. Maybe you're like Paul. You've blasphemed God. 
Maybe like Mary Magdalene, you've been immoral. Maybe like Zacchaeus, you've run to your own tree. But His grace is still available because He wants to lead you into where you can dazzle. Do you remember when Jesus was crucified? He was crucified between two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. And he got to one of them. And that thief cried out. Somehow he knew that he had never been in a better place. Even though he was experiencing the agony on the cross, that thief knew he had never been in a better place. And let me tell you something, that agony you're going through right now might be your good place. Because you just might realize that Jesus is next to you in it. And he might be able to lead you out of it. And so that thief, he cried out and he said, Lord, have mercy on me when you come into your kingdom. Now that was very absurd concerning what that man had done, but even more absurd than that was the fact that the request was granted. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The desperado didn't deserve lo love, but he got it and he got more. The desperado was dazzled with the glory of God right in the middle of his pain because he did what he could do, risking ridicule, risking being thought of as a fool, risking the Lord saying, what right do you have? kind of life you've lived. He brought it all. King Brown brought me a book on my birthday, wonderful devotional classic, Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. And on August the 8th, Spurgeon said this, Some say I am but a worm. I can never attain to anything. But there is nothing which one saint was that you may not be. There is no elevation of grace, no attainment of spirituality, no clearness of assurance, no post of duty which is not open to you. If you have but the power to believe, the dazzling power that he gives. Now, all that our efforts will get us is a dead idol buried in a grave in Memphis by a swimming pool or an empty tomb or a dead leader who has failed us until we're dazzled. <laughs> and when we're dazzled, then we hear the angel and he said, he's not here. He has risen and his power is here. Will you let God dazzle you? Have you got the desire, regardless of what it takes, 
to go out in this city and be the dazzling presence of God. Because if you don't, one day you'll get to glory and you'll find out you could have. Father, we thank you. Lord, we praise you. We glorify you. We ask you today, Lord, to get rid of all of these ways we've rationalized our worldliness, our materialism, our turning a deaf ear when people say things about Christian commitment that we just plain don't want to do because we're too busy doing what we want to do. And, oh, Father, we know that as long as we're there, we will not grow in your grace and in your power. And right now, would you say, Lord, if there is anybody who ever gave it all, I want to give it all. And Lord, whatever is not all, then you show me, and I will do it. And then, Lord, I'm not going to look for anything in a tomb, but I'm going to look for glory. The close of our service, we'll have elders in the chancel and ministry team members. We'll have them in the chapel. If you need to deal with God today in whatever way you do, then will you come and do that? Thank you, Lord. Amen.